Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. Uh, we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. We are also now on Patreon, so if you feel like you would like to support the show, I would really appreciate any donations you could make for the podcast through our Patreon page, which is linked up in the show notes. This episode's guest, we have James Smith from Global Sport Concepts back on for our monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. On this episode, James discusses utilizing the concept of dynamic correspondence to potentially enhance training transfer. As always, guys, this was another monster episode with James. The information was absolutely outstanding, and I hope you really enjoy it. James Smith, we are live, my friend. How are you? I'm good, Robbie. Thanks for having me on again. We've had a, a good 40 minutes pre-chat before our our actual recording here in the podcast, so uh, uh, already my fucking mind is racing with, with what we've, we've discussed already, but uh, our topic for the last two podcasts was critical thinking, so two episodes ago it was the importance of critical thinking, and then the last episode was more about how to attain those skills or go about attain those skills, which, which I knew you were still a bit reserved on because you don't like it and giving out sort of protocols or cookie-cutter advice, but got a lot of good feedback there from, from a few of the listeners who who really appreciate those podcasts, um, so really appreciate those last two episodes. So for today, um, the topic that I kind of chose for today was of transfer training and dynamic correspondence. The reason for that being that I actually currently am doing a sort of a literature review or essay on this topic, um, and as redundant as this may seem to you, the uh, the actual title of the essay basically, or, or the, the sort of essay centered around taking a Olympic lifting movement or derivative, so power clean or power snatch, in my case it's power clean, and seeing uh, if it transfers to a specific sports skill of, of your choosing, so I chose block clearance and early acceleration in the 100 meter sprint and we had to use the criteria of dynamic correspondence to see is there a possible relationship between a power clean and block clearance and early acceleration in my case in my essay so basically you know what i wanted to get you on to talk about was transfer training dynamic correspondence doesn't necessarily have to pertain to the actual example there of power clean to early acceleration or block clearance but how can somebody utilize maybe the criteria put forth by Berkashansky uh, to, to, to so it's better informed, prescribe special strength training uh, to attain higher results in sport? The question is good, Robbie, and the way that I'm going to answer it is one in which actually serves a unifying purpose because if everyone listening to this demands of themselves an objective frame of reference, which is something you have to work hard to do, admittedly, because everyone, myself included, which is we have to work to overcome the dysfunctional, cultural... Conditioning? The the consequences. Mm. The, the, The consequences of... And I'm not going to go off on a tangent on that, but we're all products of it, which is why we all have to work hard to remain objective, which means it has to be a conscious effort to divorce yourself from bias, subjectivity, presupposition, prejudice, 
personal feeling and opinion. So what I, what I want you and everyone else listening to the way I'm going to answer your question to just just for as an exercise to assume the perspective of someone who has no previous understanding or knowledge of any associated subject matter and is simply some sort of higher intelligence alien visiting and having a look at the rugby pitch or the Aussie rules or the hurling or the Gaelic football or the track and field or the NBA or whatever. And the, the, all, all they, they're seeing it for the first time. And we're, using, we're utilizing the concept of dynamic correspondence to explain something, but they have no presupposition. So what this shows is the, the concept of dynamic correspondence is elaborated upon by the late Yuri Voroshansky is essentially five bullet points. I, I'll, 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 I'll read them off here. of the, the amplitude and direction of movement, the accentuated region of force production, dynamics of effort, rate and time of maximal force production, and regime of muscular work. So before we elaborate upon the, the concept of dynamic correspondence, what we have is those descriptions. And without a preconceived notion of some factionalized or isolated or specialized professional field, all you have now is information and you're attempting to make sense of it. And the reason why this is has a unifying potential, which is consistent with my governing dynamics argument, is because without precondition or presupposition, we have to have a reference point. So how are we contextualizing the accentuated region of force production, the rate and time of maximal force production? What is our context? So as you know, I have the affinity for mathematics and physics. So if I use the analog, that these are derivatives, and they are derivatives taken from some function. The function provides context because we differentiate from that function and if it's a mathematical context, we, we get slope and rate of change of slope, etc. If it's a position versus time graph, we get the kinematic derivatives of position in terms of velocity, acceleration, jerk, jounce, etc. In this context, we are derivating from a sport motion. That's how I'm going to answer this question, and that's why the concept of dynamic correspondence has the potential to be unifying. Mm -hmm. be because what we're saying is forget about profession. For forget about professional title. The context is performing motions to develop the competition motion and specifically addressing the dynamics of effort, the accentuated regions, the region of regime of muscular work, etc., the more criteria that we satisfy of dynamic correspondence, the greater degree of motion transfer towards the objective. So the utility of all this is to not disrupt the assimilation or the knowledge gained by way of adding nonsensical professional jargon to the discussion. So we simply contextualize it by block start 
kinematic kinetic variables mm -hmm. or any other sport motion. Obviously, a block start is easy to talk about due to the lack of dynamic complexity in comparison to some, let's say, team sport motion in which there are, are uh, there's a much higher degree of dynamic complexity in terms of the nature of motion and the contributing kinematic kinetic variables. Block starts very linear. We have a basic geometric position of the body in the block start. I wrote a first principles two series of articles that my friend Christopher Glazer put up on his site that indicates a comprehensive overview of the sprinting as a whole, in which case anyone who's interested in your example of the block start all the way through a sprint could read if they're interested. Here, let's just summarize. We have the geometric position in the blocks, and we know that it has to be optimized relative to the sprinter's not only anthropometric proportions and lever system, but also their output potentials, mm -hmm. which corresponds to their stage of development and their genetics, etc. And we can use any sport motion example, but the key is we're deriving from the sport motion. So this is where the unification occurs because this has nothing to do with sport coach, strength coach. This is simply sport motion preparation. Mm -hmm. So the concept of improving, let's say, the accentuated region of force production. So, so now we say, well, what, is, what does that mean? Well, we have to account for the kinematic and kinetic variables associated with the sport motion in question. So if it's the block start or if it's any other sport motion, we take a freeze frame in order to do a regression analysis of a motion. Because if we look at, for instance, block clearance as a stop motion freeze frame, and then we perform a regression analysis, which is quite literally a frame-by-frame -frame slow motion reverse that works backwards from block clearance in which relative extension is achieved throughout the, the knee-hip series of the front foot off the blocks. If we work backwards from that and we go frame-by-frame frame looking at the sprinter moving backwards into the blocks, effectively, each one of those frames is a derivative of the last one. And if we watch the film in slow motion from block setup to forwards to block clearance, each one of those is an integral. Because what, I, what we're saying here is the function is that relative extension upon block clearance, that's our function. For the, for the purpose of this example that I'm making. And this dynamic correspondence could be looked at as either derivatives or integrals, depending upon which way you're working in terms of the film review. And on the basis of, let's, let's say we're working backwards in derivative format, on the basis of what improves, what region of joint amplitude are we talking about at whatever it, whatever it is, uh, seven frames backwards from joint extension. Well, whatever that, kin that kinematic position graph shows us of the athlete's position, 
that's an indication of amplitude of joint motion at that moment. We can, in terms of an emergent consideration of all this, because what I'm, what I've discussed so far is reductionist, an emergent is just looking at the whole process as a whole. So let, let, let's just consider what are the, the set of initial conditions in the block and the final set of conditions upon clearance and what is, what do those joint amplitudes consist of? What does the regime of muscle, muscular work consist of throughout that entire motion? The accentuated regions. So it, it doesn't matter. You can look at it more emergent and complex, or you can look at, at more simplified and reductionist. You, you're going to arrive at the same place because the, the context here is, well, we know the most important thing is the rehearsal of block start itself because it doesn't matter what amount of preparation we do apart from block starts if we do not practice block starts we've got an obvious limiting factor here now as to the question of well what proportion of the overall workload must block starts be in the preparation of a of a sprinter necessarily that has to be answered well it depends because for example, Charlie Francis showed how actual block work was not done until just before the competitive season because they did so many different types of metasymbolic cells, three- and four-point starts and rolling starts and get-up starts off the grass. The point is you got to practice the, the sport event or, or, the, or some component of the sport event because obviously the 100 meters or the 200 meters or the 400 meters is much more than block starts. But the start becomes more consequential the shorter the distance. So it's the most consequential in the 60 meters in the indoor event. Mm. Nevertheless, and again, any listener here, I want you, I want you to think of any sport motion because it's the, and in fact, let me go there for a moment, moment, Robbie, to specify. This is the sport motion is the one that in most sports constitutes an episodic occurrence. In which case, the specific dynamics of that episode are quite dissimilar from any other sport. So in so many of the sports that occur on a field or a pitch or a court, the motion that separates these episodes that define that sport is effectively the motion that they're all doing, which is running. In some variant, it's sprinting, it's running, what have you. But the, but then when we say, well, what is an episodic occurrence in basketball that is quite dissimilar from hurling? What is an episodic occurrence in water polo that is quite dissimilar from rugby union scrummaging? That's how we're ultimately – now, obviously, all sports that occur in the water are, are different due, for obvious reasons. But regarding the terrestrial-based ones, it's those episodic occurrences that actually distinguish one sport from the next in terms of the technical motions that allow someone to be very skilled in an ice hockey slap shot or wrist shot, but potentially quite awkward with, let's say, 
shooting a basketball or utilizing a kicking a rugby ball through the uprights. It's not a necessarily core. It's not necessarily a, a given, but it's it's what distinguishes the ice hockey player from the basketball player from the rugby player more so. Now again, I, I, I maybe I shouldn't have used ice hockey because we have skating to account for, which is similar but not the same as running. But any anything on a field pitcher court, just for, to simplify this. What is it that distinguishes the tennis player from the Gaelic football player in X position? What is it really that distinguishes the basketball player from the Aussie rules player in a given position? It's much less the running because the running comes down to amounts and durations and volumes and intensities, but everyone's running. It's just a different species of running. But the other motions are very, very different. And that's what ultimately distinguishes. And in the context of dynamic correspondence, we further distinguish. Because, for example, the contribution of force production in shooting a basketball, obviously it depends upon how far away from the rim you are in terms of how much force you need to generate to propel the ball a given distance. However, of the assemblance of shots taken, you're not dealing much more than about 10 meters, give or take, for those who are the most proficient three-point shooters. And the amount of muscular output for a grown male, for example, to project the ball 10 meters, it's negligible. It's not a question of force development. It's subtleties of motion. Whereas scrummaging in rugby union or down lineman contact in American football or bobsled brakeman, in which case we have a significantly higher amount of force production or sprinter's block clearance, in comparison to shooting a basketball is what contextualize the role of force development to begin with because the lesser the implications of force in terms of some mass at a given acceleration, the, the less consequential even the concept of specialized training because there's no real significance to specialized strength training for shooting a basketball. There, there really isn't any. There's no cause to really address that component of preparation. But when the sport discipline itself does register a much higher quantity of force, some mass times some acceleration, then necessarily we have to look towards more modes of preparation than simply practicing the sport act itself. Now, to, to reiterate, there is nothing more important than practicing the sport act itself. The question is, what else might be useful to perform to support the sport act? And so what I just demonstrated was, well, when it comes down to shooting a basketball, there really is not much more important than shooting a basketball. 
in terms of improving one's ability to shoot a basketball. Speaking of adults who are, are long past that stage of physical literacy that you and I talked about off air. Mm-hmm. Whereas one could arguably state that throughout the entire career of an athlete, such as a short sprinter or a rugby union prop or forward or an American football down lineman and so on and so forth, in which case the very execution of a technical sport motion of utterly fundamental importance is inextricably linked to significant force production. We contextualize it via the dynamics of the motion itself, and that is what contextualizes the application of dynamic correspondence. The more criteria of dynamic correspondence that one fulfills necessarily becomes a closer and closer approximation of the sport motion itself, either in its whole or in its separate parts. It must. It must necessarily. Hence, the unifying potential of such a criteria. So go ahead and react to what I've stated so far. No, so so far, yeah, I think it makes sense. Take the global scale and, and then, you know, as you said, work backwards from it. Or you could, well, there's a few ways to it, but you mentioned the regression of it too. Or, um, I mean, I suppose that is what you would do. There is going to be nothing more specific than the skill itself. But I suppose a question that I just had in my mind there was that, like, if not, like, in terms then, I suppose, again, it depends on the actual sport and the main skill of the sport. But why not just practice? There is that question. Why not just practice the sport? Like some people say, why not just practice the sport then all the time instead of trying to come up with these elaborate schemes of derivatives? And then we don't know if some of these derivatives help. And I suppose the other argument is that is there is this like overload then on certain tissues and areas of the body. And, you know, we're, there's a balance there where we can still feed certain transferable qualities and get a benefit and then kind of let restoration happen at, you know, at certain maybe again tissue levels of the body or. I suppose it's more the actual physical components of the system, like tissues and cartilage, or like cartilage and fascia and muscle and all that, like not to be utilizing the same patterns over and over again, but still being able to enhance the skill through a through a secondary or second or third generation process. Yes. But, but uh, yeah, no, it makes like it makes sense to take the skill and work backwards, and then from that come up with derivatives of it. Um. So uh, going off what you've spoken about there already. How, like, how would you then formulate? I suppose again, we have to give a specific skill. Well, I, let me. I, I think I know what you're getting at, Robbie. That to first to address something you said there. If consistent with the governing dynamics, and there's no factionalized aspect to the preparation, the way this makes sense is, and again, anybody listening, imagine you're in charge of absolutely everything. So. You're the head sport coach in a in a system in which everything is ultimately up to you. And via a successful sport engineered blueprint, and these are all I'm using jargon from the book that I wrote, you're designing the master plan. And, and that's why I say I want everyone to remove any presupposition or preconceived notion because we're simply contextualizing a sport motion and what we can do to develop it. 
So as I said, as you questioned, there there is nothing more important than practicing the sport motion and the mode of loading the practice of the sport motion is what deserves absolutely special attention. Mm -hmm. And we've seen attention played to this probably in the, in the team sport realm, football. And I'm not referring, uh, if I'm speaking about the American version, I'll say American football. Football has probably showed the most forward thinking in terms of tactical periodization that some various industry, prominent industry leaders in, in football have known. It's nothing new. It's that when I was living in Portugal, there is a, there is a, a, a Portugal sports science professional. I, I'm not. Mendoza. Portuguese. Mendoza. Is, is that a second tactical periodization? The, uh, I, I, I'm, I think I'm thinking of another name, but there, some, someone out of there, I think, was one of the one of the first to popularize the concept. But the point is, that's an example of what I'm referring to. In that, if we were to say, for example, we're we're going to prepare a hundred meter sprinter, and for the sake of this example. We're not going to leave the track and we're not going to depart from anything other than some component of the race itself. So all you can do is block start, accelerate, reach maximum velocity, speed endurance. That's it. All you can do is start from blocks and sprint, nothing else. No jumping, no throwing things, no weight training exercises, nothing. And we're going to use... A, a clone. So we're going to assemble all these different type of coaches who want to have a, who want to compete against each other. So th this is an example of how we can see actually who is the best coach because we're cloning the medium of their trade craft and no one else is participating. So we've got one coach and one, one perfect copy or replicant of the next clone. And all you can do is block start and sprint. And in 12 weeks, we're going to see who can sprint 100 meters the fastest. Then we will get to see whose knowledge reigns supreme with respect to all those components of coaching, which, of course, we have to get into the, the, the psychomotor, sensory motor, cognitive, emotional connectivity, etc. But strictly regarding motion, this is an example of, okay, let's maximize what we can get out of the most important motions themselves, the sport motions. Now the question is, what, what might we be able to do in addition? Mm -hmm. Because at the end of that 12 weeks, you know, whoever wins, wins. Now the question is, hmm, do you think we could develop a faster sprinter if we do more than just block start, accelerate maximum velocity, speed endurance training? M might we be able to? Well, obviously, the answer has to be it depends. Mm -hmm. But let's say the answer is yes. Uh, or let's say we have a convincing enough argument based upon our knowledge of mechanics, and we can talk about how the type of force production changes literally with each step starting from blocks all the way through to the finish line. But force production is necessarily a vital component, but what type of force production?
in what principal component of the horizontal ground reaction force vector is made manifest and at which part of the race and how do those forces change in relation to the, the vertical versus, versus more horizontal impulse from the blocks to the upright position and how might we supplement what is achievable with something that is different than only block starting or only sprinting in acceleration or the upright position. And necessarily, this is where a criteria such as dynamic correspondence, but it could be anyone because mathematically, it's simply a derivative or an integral. That, that's what it is. And, you know, dynamic correspondence or Bondarchuk's transfer of training, this is just jargon. The words don't matter. They, they just help us understand one definition versus another. What, they, what the function of all these principles have in common are ways to differentiate the sport motion. And something that you mentioned earlier, Robbie, you, you mentioned, you know, well, how do we know if one of these not entirely specific motions transfers? The answer is we already do know that that's, that's the reason why we have criterias such as dynamic correspondence or training transfer or, or just simply mathematical thinking in terms of derivatives and integrals. Can you explain those terms, derivatives and integrals? Because I know if I was a young strength coach, I'd be like, what the hell is he talking about? So in, I, I think what's probably most, as opposed to me going into pure mathematics here, when, when we, we have mathematical, essentially mathematical rules, principles, proofs that demonstrate why a certain procedure is effective. And when we differentiate or take a derivative of a function in mathematics, what we are doing is actually demonstrating what the slope is of that function. What is the rate of change? And as we continue to take one derivative after the next, it's a rate of change of a rate of change of a rate of change. And then we have to specify in what, in what dimensional space we are working in, in terms of what that derivative represents. And then the same with integrals. And an integral is an antiderivative. So an, inter an integral takes you closer back towards the original function. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, anyone who's interested, I, I explore, I encourage you to do what I, I mean, I'm a student of all this. I study mathematics every day. And I, I like to use it as an analog because it's such an excellent representation of what we're doing in order to evolve sport coaching. Because yeah. a, a derivative, let me give an example that an easy, it's easy to use the block clearance. So you're talking, so about, you're talking about velocity acceleration, jerk would be derivatives, obviously. They're derivatives of themselves. Those are derivatives in, in terms of rate, rate change of time, or time, the rate, rate of change. Kinematics. Yeah. The first derivative of a change in position is velocity because mm -hmm. a change in position over a change in time is some distance yeah. or displacement over a change in time, and that is the equation for velocity. Similarly, a change in velocity over a change in time is an acceleration, mm -hmm. and a change in acceleration over a change in time is jerk, and a sure. change in jerk jounce. So that gives you a, a physical representation 
of the mathematical principle. Now, if we talk about that in a sport representation, if I say, give me a derivative of block start, the answer must be, okay, well, clearly this has to account for the dynamic correspondence is an example of how to make sense of this or Bondarchuk's special exercises, criteria, specialized developmental preparatory. They're all derivatives. So we look at the block start. We say, okay, what's the angle of the front knee and what's the angle of the back knee? What's the angle of the hip and front and the hip associated with the front leg and the hip associated with the back leg? What's the angle of the shoulder how do these angles at the ankles as well, how do these angles change at each frame of the block clearance? And the way we take a derivative is we say, okay, well, we've got force plates in the pedals, and I know the newtons of force that are generated on initial impulse, and I know the angle of the front knee and the hip associated with that knee and the ankle of the back, etc., so now let's see here. Let's let's take them off the blocks. But what I'm going to do is we're going to we'll do let's say a jump with both legs, and then the knees of both legs will achieve the exact same angle as the front leg in the block. So this is an example of a derivative where we say, okay, we got the same exact angle of the knee. I'm not really talking about any other parts of the body, but we're going to do as explosive as a two-legged jump as we can from this same angle as the front knee and the blocks. So we, right off the bat, we know, okay, that's going to transfer. The question is, how much is it going to transfer from one sprinter to the next? Because what about if we stagger the feet and we assume the same displacement between the feet as they are in the blocks and the same position at at the knee angle as they are in the blocks, but now they're a bit more upright at the waist and doing this sort of awkward jump from a staggered stance. Well, we know that's going to transfer to, to some extent, but how much is it going to transfer? And we continue to go on and on and on. In, in, in terms of more derivations of, okay, well, we talked about different types of jumping exercises at the same approximate knee angles. Now, what if we externally load the body? What if we do an externally loaded jump and we use against some type of resistance? Or what if we put a barbell on the back or in the hands and we say, okay, I want you to perform this maneuver of knee and hip extension explosively and you're going to start at the same or the approximately same degree of knee bend, we start seeing, we see the relationships here because we're, we're approximating the same set of initial conditions, at least in part. And if we then talk about the overall amplitudes of motion and the dynamics of the effort itself. So I, as I said, we've got a force plate now and we have some magnitude of newtons to associate with the block start itself. So now we have a a mode of indication, whereas I'm achieving a certain amount of newtons on this 
jump derivative or this weight training derivative or whatever derivative. So I've got that quantity. And now when we go back through effective recovery and test the block start again, well, what's happened to that magnitude? If it's improved, aha, now I know I've been successful. And the more minimalist you are in your selection of preparatory derivatives, the more of a quantitative correlation you can develop, the more the closer you can arrive to one-to-one. Because if I use 36 different derivatives, each of which has a good explanatory foundation in regards to its kinematic, kinetic relationship to the sport motion, and then the sport motion improves, I don't really know which one was more effective than the other. I, I just know that the complex was effective, but might one of them been much more effective? Could I have done three of them instead of 36? Could I have done one of them instead of 36? Therein lies the rub, which is why the, the minimalist approach is well served because why do more than you have to? The point is we're using quantitative analysis to determine the efficacy of our ideas. And, and, and in effect, this is simply just competent scientific method because the, the hypothesis has to be of significant explanatory value for it to even hold up as a reasonable hypothesis from which to conduct an experiment. The experiment, as I talk about in the book and I've done some things on social media, the, the, the coach is the experimentalist. What I'm doing right now is, is theory. I, I'm a theorist. And not only is it what I do professionally, but it's as a, as a tangent, this is one of the fundamental missing components in sport is a, is a theorist, as we see in so many other scientific, medical, technological realms. Mm-hmm. But, I digr- but I digress. <clears throat> the quantities are essential. And so to substantiate the scientific experiment, we have to have a viable hypothesis to begin with. Okay, so now we say, okay, it's good. That's a good explanation. That's a robust criticism of current methods. This warrants the the time and cognitive effort and finances associated with the experiment. Let's do it. So now we're testing and we're observing and we're repeating and we're applying modes of error correction. And... If the hypothesis is sound and it turns out right because our quantitative comparison of what we discover via our experiment supports the prediction, it verifies the prediction, ultimately at the end what's left standing is new knowledge. We say, correct, yes, for such and such sprinter, such and such preparatory derivative was without question or argument effective because we're quantifying everything that's quantifiable, and that's what allows it to be an objective comparison. So no matter what the sport motion is, you have to consider all of the dynamics of that motion in order to form intelligent preparatory derivatives or integrals or or whatever your chosen jargon, because it just does not matter. If you like the idea of special strength training or dynamic correspondence or training transfer, you know, ha- you know, have fun with it. It doesn't matter. You can call it the blue tomato. The point is that you understand 
the function of what is happening. And I'll continually revert back to the necessary unification of the knowledge that is factionalized, and not only the unification, but the further evolution. Because it's much more, uh, it's much more, my argument is much more than just what happens if a sport coach and a strength coach have a baby. That's, that's, it's much more than that. Because what I'm talking about is not only a, a, a unification of knowledge, but an evolution of knowledge. And an example of how that is relevant is, is this example that I'm using. And that we, we simply have to eradicate preconception and categorization and association of, okay, well, if it's done on the track, that's the track coach. But if it's a derivative, I guess that's the, some other coach. Forget about all that. It's just the sport motion and anything that can be done to enhance the sport motion. So again, as I indicated earlier, if the sport motion does not necessitate any significant component of unrelated preparation, then there's no need for unrelated preparation. Mm -hmm. It's simply a question of what can be done that is useful to improve the sport. Now, I have to also be clear in reiterating here, all we've discussed so far is motion, nothing related to psychomotor, sensory motor, or cognitive, which has an enormous implication on motion, particularly the more dynamic it becomes in terms of complexity. However, just regarding the physical part of motion, what I'm explaining here is the unifying concept of dynamic correspondence, in which case we're dissecting the motion dynamics of a sport motion. So everything must either derivate or integrate, serve as an integral towards, derivate away or integrate towards the sport motion. Because if what you're doing is not supporting the sport motion, you've really got to question, what are you doing? Because one of the only caveats to not directly supporting the sport motion is regenerating from it, recovering from it, which of course you know something about is it's part of your profession. But in terms of any action taken that is not directly related to regenerating from or recovering from, now you have to ask yourself the question, to what extent is it supporting and why? And what account do we have of everything being done? And is everything being done accounted for on one blueprint? Or is it two? Or is it three in terms of the load? Mm. And who's in charge of the load? Are there one person in charge of one part of the load and another of another and another of another? Or is it one individual in charge of all of it, and and then ask yourself, well, what makes most sense? Because there's a price to be paid. The as we discussed offline, it's indivisible to account for the physical cost of block starting from block starting itself, because we do not talk about block starting and clearance and sprinting and all the different types of sport motions that distinguish one sport from the next 
we, we cannot speak about them in the abstract as if there's no physical cost to rehearsing that motion itself. And the more the velocity, the more the force or an aggregate of the two associated with the performance of the sport motion, the greater the physical cost. So the greater the load in all of its subdivisions, psychomotor, sensory motor, cognitive, mechanical, structural, etc. The greater the load, the greater the velocity and force. So what then is the price of that in addition to anything done other than the sport motion? And again, I come back to, and who's in charge of the loading? So we we utilize dynamic correspondence as an example here of its unifying potential and what must be unified due to the consequences of this absence of unification, which essentially is what sport currently exists as and has apart from the isolated environments, in which case this knowledge that I speak of has been actually fully assimilated, in which case there is a cohesively governed and engineered system of loading in which absolutely everything done is accounted for and the only reason things are done is because of the way they show correlation or support or regenerative purposes in a way that solidifies the holistic process that must be yet rarely is what, what I'll simply just called what I'll simply just call sport preparation Something that just came into my mind there, um, I suppose it's kind of coming off the the question I was trying to ask earlier on very, very poorly. My mind wasn't wasn't 100% where it should have been in terms of trying to ask that question, but it's kind of formulated a bit better in my head here. So I suppose like from talking with Franz Bosch previously and then you know being an altist with Stu, basically like what's in my mind here is that there's kind of two ways, if you want to use the term, to overload uh, overloaded movements. So one way is to add like more actual overload in terms of like intensity or actually actual volume. So like, you know, like for the basic strength training exercise, you know, more weight on the bar. But then at the other end of that, you have variation. And it would seem that, you know, the more complex a skill is and the less it is, to, the, the harder it is to overload, to actually put resistance on that because the skill is so complex. So like, you know, golf swing or, or you know, uh, again, acceleration or or the shooting a basketball, it seems then the way to overload that is to add more variation then into the task, you know, more predisturbances and, you know, as Franz would talk about, this attraction and fluctuator and, again, more variation. That seems to be, he says the variation is a way of, of overloading the system. So do you, do you, and then it goes back to John Goodwin who talks oftentimes of, you know, you basically need to ask yourself, is is a reason why an athlete is not progressing is it because it's a physical capacity issue that's holding them back that's not letting them allow that's not allowing the athletes or let, allowing them to display their skill because they don't have the physical capacity to support the output or they do have the physical capacity but they just don't have the skill master yet so he'd always go back to is it a capacity issue or a skill so with dynamic correspondence there let's say we do have an individual from a physical capacity standpoint, we know that they should have the, you know, the sufficient buckets filled of the physical capacities of biomoral qualities, etc., that would support the skill they're trying to execute. Would, would then dynamic correspondence be more like 
looking at variations of that of that particular skill task then. So it's more again like this kind of Franz Bosch idea or even like you know uh, a dynamical systems type theory thing where it's it's you know you're just trying to add more variability in to, to, to get that organism to come up with better solutions so that it will therefore lead to a better performance. The way that has to be answered from from my perspective, Robbie, is simply what's necessary to improve. Mm-hmm. And in the context of saying Im- improving upon the volume of work done, we we can parochialize that easily enough to say, well, what different ways do we have of intensifying anything just generally? And we can say, okay, well, if we do more volume, yeah. we, we don't have to increase the intensity as measured in terms of velocity or kilos or, or wattages or newtons or what have you. We can increase the frequency which gives us more density. You know, that's a very simplified example of what can be done to generate some type of overload. The question is, is an overload even necessary to improve? Yeah, yeah. Basically, that's it. But it's just before you go on there, it's just that Franz would say variation is like in parentheses or like in like quotation marks an overload. But it's not like a true overload in terms of intensity, in terms of like extra velocity or weight. But like he would say a way of improving, I suppose, the athlete is through variation, rather than constantly thinking of more in terms of volume or intensity or frequency. Sure, and that and that's an example of how the the increase of let's just call it environmental stimuli, external stimuli that's presented to the organism necessarily overloads the sensory organs uh, responsible yeah, for managing yeah, yeah. that task. That's a good yes, yeah, yeah, that so, makes sense. So, you know, as you know, my perspective is one in which I, I constantly work towards objectivity because I, I come from no factionalized frame of reference. And so, again, what, what we're simply asking every listener to, to do here is to divorce yourself from the myopic cultural consequences that undoubtedly you are a product of mm. because you know I have the luxury of being a music college graduate and I have the luxury of being simply a product of what I read and what I watched and what I thought about and not have any type of curriculum required of me or anything else and all the knowledge exists out there you know like in goodwill hunting if you've got a library card that's all you need. You just have to know which questions to ask. So, the uh, so as as again, I come back to it. What what's the difference between the introduction of a succession of the same stimuli in terms of my sensory apparatus versus some complex variants of stimuli? In, in both cases, clearly there's there's intuitive enough of an overload because it's, if it's the same stimuli over and over. I'm overlighting a more narrow set of sensory receptors. And if it's a varied set of stimuli, I'm not overloading a singular set of sensory necessarily receptors, but a greater magnitude of different sorts. When we start talking about what type of vestibular and otherwise sensory motor retinotopic, all cortical regions responsible for processing and ultimately leading to the motor output of some type of motion regarding the, the complex of motions that are achievable. You know, if, if we go from, you know, parkour 
on, on one end of dy- dynamic complexity or, or gymnastics to, to something as, as, as literally linear as just run in a straight line. What we're dealing with is the question to be asked is, okay, what sense organs and cortical regions of the brain and neural pathways and all that's encompassed by a governing dynamics per, per, perspective of sensory motor, what, what is that aggregate for a given sport? And how might we most effectively stimulate that aggregate to improve? And so this is why I say we, we have to unify knowledge, which is, which is what I talk about in the governing dynamics, in which case we're, you know, notice how I said a few times, granted dynamic correspondence, we're talking about motion, but we have to account for the psychomotor, yeah. sensory motor, cognitive. We have to. We cannot divorce, and and nor should, nor should this understanding be relegated to different factions of isolated knowledge. Mm-hmm. Because here I am, I can say, Robbie, we can have a podcast about psychology if you like, and then we can talk about the sensory motor process in the next one if we like, and then we can talk about kinematics in the next one. We can talk about cognitive advance in the other one. And we can talk about physiotherapeutic progress in the other one. And, and that's an example of just simple competency that any, in my argument, sport coach must have. Because as soon as we say, okay, right, I've pretty much got a grasp of what we can do to improve output here. But I recognize it's not necessarily the limiting factor because the output is not really what's holding back this tennis player from having a more effective backhand in reference to some cross-court trajectory of the ball. And so, but you know what? That's sort of out of my frame of reference. So I'll just keep worrying about outputs over here and ask the, the, the you know, the, 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 the psychomotor, sensory motor knowledgeable person over here or the tennis coach over there or whoever, you, you know, you, you fix that and I'll just keep doing my thing over here. That's a problem. And effectively, that's sport. Yeah. So we have to fix that problem. And, and, and the way we fix it is by simply guiding anyone who's interested in sport towards what I've referred to as the governing dynamics, which means if you're going to be competent, you have to have a working understanding of this list. And that just simply means you're competent in, in the same way that, you know, you can – if we look at the graduates of Oxford or Cambridge – we know that there's just enough that you can do to graduate. And then on the other end of that spectrum, there's, there's brilliant, there's, there's geniuses. So even though you're a graduate of Oxford or Cambridge, which in and of itself carries a certain weight, there's a big difference between someone who just graduates and someone of genius intellect. And in the same way in sport coaching, all I'm saying is to be competent in the same way that I can give a seminar on each of the governing dynamics from the philosophical components steeped in cultural instantiation to the psychological components of psychological preparation to the cognitive components of intellectual and analytical advancement to the biomechanical and physics implications of technique and, and physical outputs and, and how we synergize the culture and the psychomotor and the sensory motor and the cognitive 
and the technical and supportive physical into the tactical execution and so on and so forth. This is just competency, just competency. I'm simply competent. If we take someone of genius intellect and, and which I do not have and, and, and now provide them in the direction with, with which knowledge to amass, that gives you an idea of what the, you know, the, the Edward Witten and theoretical, theoretical physicist, it gives you an idea of what that version of, of a sport coach is with the governing dynamics, knowledge coupled with some extraordinary intellect. We cannot get away from this and using an isolated example here of how dynamic correspondence may be utilized to support a sport motion it is even of itself, in my view, an, an example of the necessary unifications that must occur because for anyone simply to use a principle such as dynamic correspondence, they have to have a con context in which they are applying it. And that context must, regarding motion, must be the sport motion. Just something that also came into my mind there as, as you were speaking. I'll go back to nearly answering my own question earlier on why can't you just repeat the same sports skill over and over again? Like, we, we, you know, we do know of the concept of accommodation, you know, and, and this other concept of uh, adaptive resistance. We know that if you keep giving uh, a biological organism the same stimulus, it, it'll adapt to it and it, it'll, it, it won't keep, it, it won't further progress in its development. So again, well, that, you know, it will, and that's why you vary the stimulus. Mm -hmm. and, and so, I mean, think, you know, Carl Lewis, he essentially, under the guidance of Tom Telez, and of course, Dan Paff was part of that, he essentially did not do any weight training until after he'd already achieved the apex of his career. Mm -hmm. he, he was doing all track work and jumps, and he did certain bounding up, up stadium stairs, but in terms of literal weight training, effectively nil. And we can go through team sport athletes similarly. So the, the point here is if it's a team sport and tactics apply, I, I make a, a, an argument for the necessary individualized approach to everything apart from the component of tactical preparation that necessarily mandates the cohesive binding of players, athletes working together at the same time. Beyond that, I, I am first and foremost a proponent of absolutely do nothing other than the sport itself if that's all that is necessary to advance. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I, absolutely. Football players, rugby players, basketball players, American football players. See, the, the, the one, before, just before you go on there, I think too... The reason why I said why can't you just play sport over and over again is, I suppose, if we think about it, if you're looking at a, a team sport like that, the environment is so chaotic that they do get so much variation built into that, whereas if it's a sprinter coming out of the blocks and it's just 100-meter linear sprint, you know, then you're kind of thinking, oh, like, that, that, there's such less variation now in that, that, that you know, the, the, the ability to accommodate and build adaptive resistance to that sports school because it's just so repetitive and so narrow in its variation. Then you could, you know, you could see there why there needs to be maybe, you know, this concept of, of, of variation in training. Like, you know, of course, variation is, is a principle of training, though, in, in all sports training. But it's, it's the paradox, though, of, you know, specificity versus variation. Because, again, going back to 
going back to like being too specific, again, you can run into this problem then of accommodation or of adaptive resistance. But it, it seems to be more of a problem in sports that are are less chaotic. So again, comparing like a hundred meter sprint to a field based sport. So I guess that's why earlier on I said that because someone could say. Oh, that was a bit of a dumb question, you know, just doing the, the same sports movement over and over again. But, like, I mean, if, I was kind of thinking more in my mind of, like, football or basketball, because you'd say basketball, throwing basketball in the head. Whereas, like, you know, there is so much chaotic variation there. That, but I think, and, and, you, I think you're misunderstanding variation, Robbie, because it's one thing to say all we're going to do is compete in races in the 100 meters and all we're going to do is compete in football matches, and that's it. You know, w- once a week or twice a week, or whatever it is, that's, we're simply going to compete in the competitions and do nothing. So be ultra-specific ultra there, that would be. Uh, uh, yeah, because I can show you a gigantic amount of variation of 100-meter preparation that consists of nothing other than block starts, accelerations, max velocity, and speed endurance sprints. Mm-hmm. Because... Given the block start, acceleration, max velocity, and speed endurance, if we just say, okay, four broad categories, all I have to do is say, okay, one clone is going to do 30% block starts and 20% acceleration and split 25 and 25 of max velocity and speed endurance and then use some other percentage scheme for 12 other clones and what I've just demonstrated is 12 variations of the competition exercise performance. And effectively, that, that's an example of, you know, we can use an analog of that as tactical periodization. So I can take the football players. I can take, we can go 11 on 11 with our, uh, with our football. And I can show you dozens upon dozens upon dozens of ways of programming variation of how they rehearse and give you all types of variation without actually doing anything other than playing football and in track doing anything other than sprinting, I can show you all kinds of variation. So variation is a general principle of simply vary the stimulus. We don't, we do not have to vary the, the overall dynamic structure of the stimulus to vary the stimulus because and, – and the reason why we, we tend to see less of the varied approach, particularly as athletes reach higher and higher levels of international success is because that's just not going to get it done. We have to find ways of intensifying the most specific aspects, which is why – the best of the best of the best, for example, sprinters, jumpers, throwers, tend to do much less variation in the way that you've been describing it in terms of just lots of different types of motions. Their variation comes in the form of how the competition action itself is loaded. What type of variation? So if we parochialize it and we say it's a push-up competition, and I say one clone is only going to do push-ups and another can do as many different types of exercises as they want. Even the one doing just push-ups, we can say, okay, how many different ways can we do push-ups? And 
even if we do the same exact type of push-up day to day, we can vary how many we do, how fast we do them, etc. So there's so many different ways to achieve variability than changing the motion entirely. And so that has to be understood. And so again, I'll come back to the more that one uses quantity to assess progress, and as I mentioned offline with you, the consulting I'm doing with virtual reality and some other entities is demonstrating just how quantifiable every single aspect of psychomotor, sensory motor, cognitive, skill, everything. Everything that the parochial minds in sport have so long since been saying, ah, well, you can't really quantify that. That's intangible. You know, all the intangibles. Uh, this is something that's kind of sort of really out of reach and we don't understand that yet. It's completely false. Everything is quantifiable. And in fact, in many fields outside of sport, as, as you always hear me saying, it's already being done. It's already being done with fMRI and other types of uh, electroencephalogram and myocardiogram and different types of psychomotor or psychometrician analysis of testing. There are so many ways to quantify everything that constitutes every aspect that ultimately summates and aggregates as a sport skill. It's just simply sport is so myopic and constrained because of the sphere with which in most of this information recirculates. And, and if you unbound yourself to what is all the knowledge on planet Earth now and over time consist of in every conceivable domain in which knowledge has emerged? And how then do we go about asking questions of this, let's just call it this universe of knowledge? This is what must be done. And the constrained process of sport coaching and sport science, et cetera, tends not to do that, which is why it, we tend to see very little change in evolution due to the myopia that infects the factionalized process, as it does so many other disciplines. But the point is, the amount that is knowable, if I say, Robbie, uh, let's, let's, let's consult with Watson, IBM supercomputer, and let's get an idea of the quantity of knowledge that pertains to philosophy, physics, biomechanics, physiology, endocrinology, sociology, socioeconomics, psychiatry, psychology, physiotherapy, every branch of medical science, every subdivision of biology. And let's quantify what does that consist of now of what percentage of that quantity of all the knowledge in the world for all intents and purposes as it regards every conceivable discipline of relevance, what quantity do most sport coaches possess? And have they even thought of themselves, have they even thought to themselves, what might I be able to gain from investigating any of these adjacent fields? And ultimately the answer is, well, what does each coach know? And therein lies the, the limiting factor. It's always a case of knowledge. And, but it is this type of thinking, you know, so you mentioned Franz Bosch and Altus and so forget about all that. Think about what is knowable and how might we mitigate the difference between what is knowable and what 
we know because what we know is always the limiting factor. So just on the variation thing there, uh, you completely misunderstood me on that. <laughs> that, that like I complete, exactly how you answer that is exactly my thoughts on that. I'd be the very person who would always be preaching that in like a, a seminar discussion that variation isn't this just random assortment of you're just completely switching up things. You're just very much, you can take a specific skill and, and vary it by like, by like just changing a very minute structure within that skill, even though it looks almost identical to to the actual sporting skill itself. That's something I would have learned. I suppose I actually would have got it from Chad Wesley, who got it from you initially. But you know, like so, a very easy thing is just like you know in powerlifting, like so, like you get people and they would like, or people just go to the gym, like oh, I have to do variation. They just start doing like these random exercises every time they go in. It's like if your goal is to get better at squatting and deadlifting and bench and you really should do derivatives of those lifts to get better at those and not like just like randomly put a sort of exercise size. but I get exactly with the 100 meter sprint in that yeah, you could take acceleration work and uh, max velocity and speed endurance and you could you could prescribe that in like an endless different ways to keep variation and the same with any of those skills I guess what I was just saying that it's probably in terms of a team based sport like there's already just, just this like massively built-in movement variability because it's so chaotic. You're gonna to have to come up with different solutions and every like and even like even with something as standardized as a squat, like do you never do the same repetition twice according to Bernstein? Like it's like repetition at repetition, like so like every movement presents something brand new at every time. And that comes back to what like Franz then talks about with these preflexes at the at the at the at the sensory level, like they're saying that you know that your muscles and the, and the the near muscle system have preflexes built into it that react to the external environment, and the reason why they're there is because it'd be too slow for that sensory input to go all the way up to the central command system and then come back to make a decision. The whole thing would fucking fall apart. So uh, like there's there's variation in in everything. Like even if you did five sets of five today in a squat at 150 kilo and did the exact same five sets of five squat, everything's the same. Even if, the, if there's like slightly different fatigue in your system or a different nutritional profile in your system, that is variation to a degree. So I, I'm not I'm just so we're clear. And I, I'm not. I don't want to confuse people listening or yourself thinking that I thought variation was just like you just completely change up things because your body would adapt because to avoid the combination. I'm not. I wasn't thinking that at all. I completely understand that you can get variation to like very minute changes that are what are, that are essentially big changes to the organism. Okay, good. Also, keep in mind, team sport is not as nearly dynamically complicated as you're suggesting that it is. Because the the motion capability of a human being is highly finite. Yeah, but what about the... What about, I'm not just talking about motion there. I'm talking about like a decision-making process. There's that too. Yeah, right, in which case there is no particular physical consequence. So what we have to understand here is the sensory structure and the psychomotor structure and the cognitive structure because they're all interrelated and mutually dependent at the moment of tactical decision making we're talking about an, an enormous aggregate of constituencies that go into play and the 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 concept of variation of motion that is necessary to improve one or another tax task must be contextualized because even though the dynamic complexity of motion is more multidimensional in almost any team sport than any 
I won't even say non-team sport because obviously wrestling, you're you're in, in all sorts yeah, of combat yeah, sports. Yeah. You're going through, but in terms of just cyclical, sprinting, cycling, swimming, canoe, kayak, Nordic skiing, we have reduced dynamic complexity. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what and, I was, that's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yep. And and but the thing is, it, it's not as if it is so varied because what happens much more so, no matter what the no matter what the first appearance, as misled as it might be, of chaos in a particular scramble in a team sport, what's happening at a much higher degree of dynamic complexity is not motion, it's sensory processing. Yeah. And and on on that basis, we have to ask ourselves of what modes of preparation are most significant in terms of the relevance to improving the tactical decision-making. And so we have to be careful with the language that we use in term, because of the implications that it might have on, for example, even in this context, anyone listening to this who goes off to the drawing board to arrive at further solutions in that no matter whether we're comparing team sport to some cyclical endeavor, it's, it's much less a factor of motion and much more a factor of sensory and cognitive and psychomotor distinction because the acquisition of motion, not doing any disservice or overlooking the subtleties of skill development. For example, if we look at a, a Messi in football and compare to a particularly skilled athlete in another discipline, in no way am I saying, you know, there's really nothing that significant about the, the motion specifics. It's simply just sensory processing. That's not what I'm saying. However, the greatest distinctions mm -hmm, mm -hmm. between the sports lie, as I mentioned earlier, in the, in the, dyna the dynamics of motion that occur in episodic fashion. It's the psychomotor, sensory motor, cognitive that are drastically different. Yeah, yeah. Well, let, let me rephrase. Aspects of sensory motor, because the psychomotor and the cognitive tend to be more generally shared. The way that I should have used the word drastically is drastically misunderstood mm -hmm. and unaccounted for in terms of what the psychological preparation, what the cognitive, which falls under the analytical and intellectual and the governing dynamics, what can be done sensory motor wise. I gave you the example offline regarding virtual reality and what's going to be coming. This has been enormously overlooked in terms of not only what can be quantified, but what can be done in practice to develop, all of which essentially I cover in the governing dynamics re regarding incrementally scaled processes of applying intensity brackets to sport tactical preparation itself, et cetera. But as a whole, the, the fields of, of knowledge and what they can contribute outside of sport, it, it has to be, it has to be understood if, if sport is to, to simply catch up to what is knowable in, in realms out, outside of it. So what I would say there to that, like that's, like exactly online what I was thinking uh, or what I was trying to convey to in terms of like this overload to the, again, the more sensory motor sort of, uh, and social, um, or what do you call it? Psychomotor, psychomotor right. systems. Yeah. So, you know, like, you know, spatial temporal awareness and sort of that. 
And yes. it, what, what, what's kind of what's kind of just come to to my mindset there is that when we were just talking with this idea of of overload versus variation and Franz Bosch common variation overload, what what's kind of come to my mind? There, it is overload in terms of, sort of the sensory and the and the and the psychomotor system. So it's it, it's overload in that way. And I suppose that goes back to your thing there of this virtual. Uh, project that you're on now that people couldn't they couldn't like assess how much overload that, that was putting on those systems whereas it's much more easier to think of overload physically in terms of something like in a weight room but just going back on variation again so what, what i was trying to get to was that there is more of that variation already built into a team sport dynamic that you know you could say well you can just play that sport and get away with only doing that sport because of that like that there is that more like uh, just dynamic chaotic variation, not in terms of the motion, not in terms of motion, in terms of the uh, that temporal and spatial awareness and sensory motor input in comparison to say, as as I was making the comparison to a 100 meter linear sprint. But that's not to say that you can't have variation within the components of a 100 meter sprint if all you did was sprinting in terms of doing block starts and acceleration and uh maximum velocity running and special endurance you mean you could you you have like infinity ways of of prescribing uh training prescriptions and and only do those only do the 100 meter sprint or the derivatives of 100 meter sprint training so i just want to make that clear in case someone's kind of yes. like, well, that was a really dumb dumb question on my part that was what i was trying to get at but exactly how you answer that and what we just covered there is kind of what i was trying to get into I, and, feel, and, I, I feel smarter now. I feel I need to say that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and regarding the tactical side of it, of, of team sport, the there is progress being made, as I referenced, you know, the, the concept of tactical periodization. Of course, that doesn't account for everything. What, what I write in the governing dynamics is, of course, this is this is my argument, is what accounts for absolutely everything in in, 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 in the way that, the, if we talk about variation and overload and how that might be manipulated and enhanced regardless of whether it regards cyclical or team sport, multi-dimensional motion and sensory processing, in any case, no matter the application, there, there must be a unified mode of understanding the engineering of the entire load and, and as we're, we're both referencing here, not just the physical, just the entire load and anything uh, the jargon doesn't matter. Everything that's being done and the price that we pay for doing it is another way that we can phrase that. And in the absence of a complete unified mode of preparation, even the concept of tactical periodization is missing the point because it only can be as successful as it can be is if absolutely nothing else is being done other than what is tactically periodized. And, of yeah. course, we know the answer to that is probably uh, there probably is some other things being done. And so the whether it's as multidimensional of a sensory processing endeavor as well as motion, as is the case in many team sports, or less complex – in terms of those variables, in terms of something cyclical, it matters not if there are divergent influences impacting all that is done and the price being paid for it. It must be unified. It must be engineered yeah, yeah, of course. by one or more people all working together such that full accountability is registered. And again, at the end of this, Robbie, the question that 
that we're answering is what can we do to improve sport results and how many different ways are there to do it? That's ultimately, no matter the minutia that we get into regarding influences on the motor cortex and afferent and different sensory nerve signaling and associated processes of physical motion, no matter how isolated we get or narrow we get in any scientific branch that contributes to the better understanding, at the end of the day, what we're doing is, is answering that question. What, what can be done? How many ways are there to do it? And how can we do it better? And that context always brings us back to the sporting question and the answering of that question necessarily regards an understanding of everything of as much that is knowable in order to mitigate that difference between that quantity and what is actually known. I have to continue to come back to that because I always find that to be the the limiting factor in any type of dialogue as it regards problem solving. Yeah, yeah. And just, uh, I suppose, maybe just wrapping up here, I don't know if, if you'd be interested in, in answering this or doing this, but let's, let's just, for, for the listeners, on dynamic correspondence there, and we've kind of used, it's more selfish in my part because it's what I'm looking into in this essay I'm doing, but with the in terms of block clearance, if we were to, to take the power clean and block clearance, and take those dynamic correspondence um, criteria put forth by Verkhozhansky. Uh, like to you, how would you go about like looking at that correspondence between those? You you have to. I mean, studies have been done already. I in that first principles article series I spoke about, there was a. I can't remember if they were Slovenian or Polish. There was a great study that dissected the kinematic and kinetic variables of block clearance in terms of force output into the pedals and exit velocity. That, that's what you have to have. You, you have to have the quantity of exit velocity So, because that's ultimately the answer. It's it, uh, kinetic and kinematic parameters of the sprint start, starting acceleration models of top sprinters. And it's from Slovenia. I have it. I've read it. I'm reading it right now. Yes, that's it. And so you have, for example, it, it, one could say, although you know, it sounds a bit curious, but if I just make a hypothetical, it doesn't matter what your force, the impulse of force generation against the pedals is if for some reason there's some mechanical breakdown in the process of clearance, in which case it mitigates the possible exit velocity. So the, so the exit velocity is the only thing that matters regarding blocks clearance because, well, let me rephrase, in terms of a motion characteristic of output because the if the exit velocity is higher but you're standing straight up now we've got problems into the acceleration so Pierre Jean Vizel is someone who I've quoted who's I think done a really awesome job at explaining in 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 using language quite literally his language explanation of sprinting in which case he's described that the transition from black clearance to the upright position should be as smooth and gradual as possible and so Given that context, since we're using sprinting as an example here, if it's a foregone conclusion that the geometric position of the sprinter's body in space is optimized, it's the exit velocity that's your barometer. So anything that you do as a solution derived from dynamic correspondence must contribute to improved exit velocity because it simply does not matter what you do if it does not contribute to improved exit velocity. 
does not matter if you improve force production on the pedals because, again, if there is a motion breakdown in terms of how your body transitions from the set position to the takeoff, then that can be a mitigating factor with respect to exit velocity. So it's, again, it, we contextualize the the equation from which we either derive or integrate towards, in this case, as exit velocity. So no matter what you derive in thinking of how can I intensify the regime of muscular work, the accentuated regions of force production, the dynamics of the effort, etc., if you are not contributing to improved exit velocity, it's a fail because none of the preceding constituents matter if exit velocity is not being improved. Similarly, we could go to any other part of the race in that if a derivative of maximum velocity preparation is not serving to improve maximum velocity, it's a fail. So it doesn't matter what metrics are improved as an adjunct so it doesn't matter what some force plate says or what some accelerometer says or any other motion capture diagnostic quantitative device tells you about the preparatory motion. If it is not improving that related aspect of the sport motion, it's a fail. So again, to, to, to come back to the question of, okay, so what are we going to do to use dynamic correspondence to enhance block clearance? First, we are clarifying, okay, first and foremost, what we're going to be measuring, our key performance indicator, exit velocity. Okay, now, now let's think about the derivative or integral fashion, or again, whatever jargon you want to use. We've got the angles to account for. We've got the muscles involved in the work. We've got the amplitudes of movement, where in the amplitude of the greatest force is generated, etc. So we're going through the dynamic correspondence postulate. And the more of those criteria we satisfy at once, necessarily, the more specific, the more direct the transfer. Because what, what you could look at is, if you satisfy everything at once, effectively you're practicing block starts. <laughs> yeah, I was just As, saying, I was just saying, the way you said that, I was like, yeah, that means you're doing the skill. <laughs> right? So, so, so the question first off is, what might be done on the topic of variability of just simply varying how we practice block starts, what net result might that reward us with? And by all means, let's get the most we can out of that. Apart from that, now, now what might be able to do in addition? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And again, it doesn't matter because say, say you say, oh, great, we, you know, we, we we, we improved the squat from 200 to 220 kilos. Oh, it's, it's great. Look, look what a great job I did. And then we go back to exit velocity and we see no change. Or it got worse. Or it got worse. And the same thing. Oh, we got the clean or the hand clean or the power snatch or the jerk or whatever. We go back to the exit velocity and say, oh, no improvement or it's worse. You, you have to determine what's going to improve, improve that result and clearly – the greater amount of criteria you satisfy, again, whether the jargon you use is dynamic correspondence or training transfer or specialized or whatever, 
the more criteria of motion dynamics you satisfy, the more specific and ultimately you're actually performing the competition exercise itself in addition to some intensified variant of it. Yeah. So you're, you're always off to a great start by identifying what is that, that perform, what is that indicator that serves the, the, the most robust indicator such that I know that if I improve this, it's a one to one correlation with sport improvement. Just with exit velocity there, like what, this is a dumb question, but I just want the answer. Like, what is that a product of? Because from the papers I'm reading there, and they're basically saying that um, if if you produce more, like basically impulse, they're saying is one thing that seems to differentiate top sprinters from you know elite from sub elite in terms of they're they're producing more force in the same amount of time, or else they're producing the, the same amount of force in less time. And actually, the paper I read was that it the uh, it was it was just here now. They were saying that um, that the where was it fucking here? One, the force impulse is determined by duration, which is applied, and this didn't differentiate the two groups, whereas force magnitude and then the, the total force and vertical rear block maximum force, along with the rate of force development, was greater in the faster sprinter. So there didn't seem to be a difference, actually, in the uh, duration that both groups applied force, but that the, the, the more elite or faster sprinters could just produce more force into the blocks. Yes, and 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 it's in specific trajectories. For instance, the the the, the research done by J.B. Moran and Piero Samozino and Ken Clark and others that have elaborated upon the trajectory of the horizontal ground reaction force vector upon ground contact. We must apply those same motion criteria to the clearance itself because while we might say the Look at the, look at the, the 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 constraints and what is, what is what we can manipulate in terms of the set of in, initial conditions. So we've got a great deal of variability in terms of block setup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The distance of each, let's just say, each pedal from the line and how that regards each athlete's anthropometric proportions. What is the angle relative to the horizontal of each pedal? And how does that correspond to the lever system and the output potential of the athlete? All of these will affect the impulse force they're able to generate because we want to complement the specifics of each athlete apart from before we even get into what preparatory solutions we arrive at apart from the block clearance itself. The Each step of the way, what we have is one could say, okay, well, yeah, the exit velocity is one thing, but what are the dynamics of the first contact? Yeah. And then the next person can say, okay, that's all getting well and good, but what about the second contact? Okay, well, that's all well and good. What about the third contact? It all matters. And the point is what we want to contribute to is the greatest set of preconditions that precede each – I'll just go back to using you know, the, the freeze-frame technology. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, you know, if, if we're at the 76-meter segment – we want to know that we've optimized what we can be done the, pre- the preceding 75 meters. Yes, Similarly, yeah. if we're at the two-meter mark, we want to know that we've done what can be optimized regarding the preceding two meters. And so regarding the, the placements of the block itself and the setup, the position of the sprinter's body, the psychomotor process of collecting one's self and simply responding to the gun and not anticipating it, the way that 
the breath is taken in in the intra-abdominal pressure associated with holding it that allows for a greater force generation to begin with upon takeoff. All of these contributing to optimizing exit velocity, and from there we begin to talk about every subsequent factor of the trajectory in which the foot makes contact with the ground and what can be done to improve, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Simply restraining the discussion to the block clearance itself, again, we come back to what can be done to show the greatest improvement in the exit velocity because that is ultimately was providing the greatest set of preconditions to what happens next in the order of events, which is the first foot makes contact with the ground and off we go. So the more velocity you have moving in to that first contact, the more the, the greater the probability of you transferring momentum into the next one and the next one and the next one. Just one last question here for you too, uh, in terms of vectors. So because like there's so much horizontal displacement, obviously in acceleration coming off the blocks, um, and and it is a horizontal vector being pushed back into the pedals. Just so, something that was in uh, strength and conditioning for, for sports forms. It comes from the chapter, the biomechanics chapter from from John Goodwin and Dan Cleaver, who were actually two lecturers in my masters. But they talk about this concept of, uh, um, and they actually talk about dynamic correspondence in their chapter. But this idea of consideration of direction of forces relative to the athlete rather than the global frame. And they say here, it's often challenging for coaches to differentiate uh, between force vectors as views from global relative to the Earth's surface as against the local frame relative to the athlete's body. For instance, there, there is a belief that if the athlete is expressing vertical force relative to the global frame in their activity, they, they must be expressing vertical force relative to the global frame in train activities. This is not strictly true. An example would be the leg press machine. I'm almost finished here, by the way. In such equipment, the athlete could be in an incline, flat, decline position, applying force in a very different directions, but without making any change to the mechanics or movement pattern in which the joints and muscles are loaded. Instead, coaches need to consider athletes as a body that is exposed to resistant forces vectors that require to express forces relative to particular body positions as particular velocities and in particular ranges and time frames. So the reason why I bring that up is because you know a lot of people talk about like, well, doing vertical type movements won't transfer as much as horizontal to acceleration which again you know if we went back to the idea of listen i know absolutely nothing and i was an extraterrestrial alien that came to earth it, it would definitely make more sense that horizontal would have more carryover just by looking at the the block star but uh, is there a carryover from a vertical like say like a non-counter or something we've got squat jump into the block star because the joint angles could line up and then the regime of muscular the regime of muscular work could also line up, you know, that's more of a starting strength overcoming inertia if you go from a static start, you know, then could could could, the, could there still be a decent transfer of that even though the jump is more vertical and it's not quite horizontal? Well, first of all, you have to recall one of the first examples I gave of what a derivative looks like is simply the preservation of a knee ankle, but jumping vertically or doing some resisted motion vertically. And the the answer is necessarily, of course it's possible, yet it depends. Depends, yes, yeah, it depends. The uh, so again, the uh, of course you know you have my criticisms against the nonsensical w word summation and the whole dominion of of the the title of the book that you mentioned. The 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 response to the to to, to the knowledge discussed you know has to be well obviously that's what the response has to be in that. 
we have to understand, again, all possible knowledge domains as they contribute to the subject matter in question. So, of course, it's a mistake to only consider some set of motion direct trajectories in isolation from the athlete's body itself. And, of course, it's a mistake to only account for internal force dynamics in the athlete's body apart from its relationship to the terrestrial or otherwise, everything must be accounted for. And again, this is what the governing dynamics counts towards is the, the problem of the factionalized suggestions that tend to divert people's attention away towards what must be unified in the first place. So again, Robbie, if the indications that are set up to ascertain progress are true, then you obviate all the minutia of quibbling over this and debating over that because it's simply, look, we've got our unarguable indicators, which is to say at what, in what context and which sport do we arrive at the point in which there simply is no room for debate because what we've isolated is, well, if you improve this, the sport result improves. And the answer for that, there is an answer for that, and there is an answer for every aspect of that for every sport. We're giving an example using something quite quite rudimentary to assimilate regarding the 100 meters because it's just a, a rectilinear activity. Even, even then, we can say, give me an example of the 100 meters of an irrefutable indicator that contributes to an improved sport result for that sprinter. Well, ultimately, there's nothing more irrefutable than the time it takes them to run 100 meters. So if their time improves, guess what? Job well done. But apart from that, apart from the time in which they cross the finish line, what else might we be able to include? Well, clearly, we're working backwards from the finish line. Because the probability of an improved 95-meter PR of being more significant to the 100 meters is much greater than an improvement in their 20-meter acceleration. Because a lot can happen between 20 meters and 95 meters. So, again, what are we doing? We're doing a regression analysis from the most important thing, the time when you cross the finish line. So the key performance indicators are working backwards and backwards, and they can become more diverse, diverse, diverse. The question is, in, in what, what relationship do they have to either achieving or approaching the quantity of one? One in which that fraction of whether it's some probability outcome or otherwise, the closer we arrive to one, the closer we uh, achieve a either direct or very close to direct, and this is where you can pick your favorite jargon, transfer, correlation, correspondence, doesn't matter, mm-hmm. a closer relationship. And in your case, it's a, it's a factor of what can be done to improve gl- block clearance. So now instead of saying, okay, all that matters is the 100-meter time, because if it's not a faster time, it's not an improvement. In your case, it's the exit velocity. Because that's the end result of block clearance. So 
it does not matter what you show that improves, for instance, the impulse of force against the pedals if for whatever reason that does not correlate to improved exit velocity. Why wouldn't it, though? Again, imagine, as I said, imagine that the sprinter, uh, imagine that their trajectory coming out of the blocks is too low or too high. Okay, so in, the, in, in a mechanical thing, like, so in terms Precisely. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah as, I, as I indicated earlier, the mechanics of what can happen during that process of relative joint extension of the front foot, which is the last one to be in contact with the pedals. Exactly. There's a lot There's a lot that can go. You've got the motion of the arms, the motion at the waist, the cervical spine, etc. And, and, and this is, this is if effectively what we've, done, what we've just done there, Robbie, is offered a proof to the fallacy of the strength coach. Yeah. In which, in which case, the the effort of a strength coach to say, look at the record board, create more force, and their yeah, mechanics, the, mechanics is shit, so it's not transfer. Exactly. So no matter how much diagnostic resource you have to where it, it let's say it's it's gone past the look how many kilos they can lift in the bench and the squat and the power clean and how many centimeters they can displace themselves in the jump and in the vertical. And then, and then you go to, oh, no, now I've got this accelerometer I can attach to the barbell. So now I can give I was, you more. I was just about to say that to you. Like, that's the problem with, with DBT, you know, that, that people are – like, they, all, they're, all they care about is the number they can register on this device. It's like no one's caring about the mechanics of how they're used to achieve these velocities. Like, oh, look, the power output went up. It's like, yeah, but you look like a ball of shit, say, so when you're doing that. That's not going to transfer anything. Well, and, and, and the, the point is you, you have to have quantitative knowledge of the sport motion exactly. for, for any of that to have relevance. So, again, that's why I say in your case it's a question of the exit velocity. Yeah. And, and you could become as specific as you want. You, you could be, go beyond that. You could say, okay, yes, it's exit velocity, but it's also the overall geometry of the sprinter's body and the subtle dynamics of the way in which the, the first contact with the ground is made. You, you, you could be elaborate upon that as much as you want, but the, the, the bottom line is – much more important than the force generation against the pedals is the exit velocity, which can be mitigated and interfered with regarding some mechanical dysfunction that happens in between those two occurrences. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's great stuff. And uh, she said something I was going to say there, and then it just escaped me. What was I going to say there? So, oh, yeah, sorry. We actually we spoke about that um, online or offline before we started the show in terms of you know certain strength coaches – they were saying they were showing all their 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 testing metrics to prove that they've done a good job, and all these metrics were basically just like these metrics and just all the usual arbitrary fucking uh, physical capacity indicators, you know. So like things like you know the uh, fucking uh, speed and agility times, uh, or speed change direction, agility times, jump profiles, one RMs in in Olympic lift derivatives, and 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 the, you know your classic strength lifts. And you know numbers in physical capacity tests, and they they think that by by getting at least to a certain standard, these that that they've done their job, that you know that 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 like oh see I've done my job now. If they if they fail to perform, it's on the sports coaching staff or the team manager or whoever else. And it's just like it's just like it's just like how do you like does that not indicate that what you're doing isn't transferring? You know just because you're like oh look this went up with the performance goal, so it has to be on them. So like, and just goes back to, you know, you're just like, at this stage, you've, I'd say, fucking banged your head against enough walls at this stage. Uh, again, it goes back to this needs to be a whole unified theory thing. And, and just while we wrap up here, definitely just going off our, our talk offline earlier on and some of the stuff you mentioned here, I definitely think the next topic that's definitely going to be uh, 
one that's going to be very um, relevant, not even relevant is the word, very productive, but very meaningful to myself and all the listeners is this idea of grammar. Uh, I think that'd be definitely one for the next one. And I bet you all the listeners are all like, what? Grammar? Because they didn't hear our conversation uh, beforehand. But just even the way what you said to me definitely stimulated a lot of thought. I think for our whole conversation on this podcast today, like just for the listeners, myself and James had like a 40 minute talk we went online and it just put me in this mad mindset for the whole podcast was that he, he left me chewing on a lot of life questions for the last two hours or whatever. Thanks for that, James, by the way. As I, as I always say, you leave me thinking, you know, I had a nice, uh, I, I was telling James all about my life plans and he just basically shit all over them, but in a good way, in a good way. Um, but I definitely, I, 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 would that be something you'd be interested in for the next podcast in terms of like this, this idea of grammar, um, and sure. you, you know, you were speaking about that, that analogy you made of like, you know, becoming physically literate and then, you know, literate within grammar and then this idea that people just leave and they don't go back to it or they don't try to improve upon it. Cause I definitely then think, you know, in terms of communicating, we, I've spoken this before, like the only real universal language in the world is maths. This fucking thing of all languages, it, it complicates everything, so it does. Um, but I definitely think grammar is a huge thing and communication, and, and, and I definitely think that's going to lead to better understanding of the government dynamics of coaching and, and the, 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 the concepts you're trying to get across in the book. Because, again, I, with, with your material, James, like I feel I have a good grasp of it, but maybe it's because of my grammar or the way I state certain things that it, it can come across that I'm not understanding things. So, like, again, earlier on, See the confusion we already had when we were talking about like variation, and then as you were talking, I was like, "No, no, that is what I mean." <laughs> and then it's just like, "Oh, that didn't sound like what you meant at all." And it's just that like there was a miscommunication because of certain words or grammars or the way things were said. And then as you kind of spoke about as well, this if people keep hanging on to titles of a physiotherapist or a physical preparation course, it's just it's perpetuating this fucking this just like absolute like chaotic ship all that is the, the sports preparation profession. Well said. <laughs> that, 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 I didn't do any grammar lessons on that one, or, or the, the points came across clearly there. But listen, uh, we're on, I think, what are we, 730, we're almost nearly two hours of the podcast itself. We're on two and a half hours in terms of the call. But uh, listen, that was fantastic today, as always. We, we covered dynamic correspondence, and we got into you know, the concepts there, specificity and variation, and, and then we finished up with a little more dynamic correspondence. But definitely for me, I'd, I'd love to speak more about the grammar the next day. And if anyone didn't get the hint there, I'd say if you haven't got the Governor Dynamics, uh, the Governor Dynamics and Coaching book yet, you need to get the finger out. I'm personally one of those people. But uh, as I was saying to James the last few times, it's just that I had so much other reading. But he's like, I understand you've got lots of reading, but it's, I think you really, really, really need to read this first now. So uh, I think that's definitely next on my list. So, James, listen, uh, just while we wrap up there, um, just, again, always part this off of where people can find you, uh, services you're providing. And maybe, I don't know if you can, can can let listeners know of any exciting projects that are coming up. I know there's some things, but I don't know if you can speak about them yet or if you can put any, any feeders out there. But feel free to let any information you want to let out there. Thank you for having me on again. It's always a pleasure to have the discussions, Robbie. The... My website is globalsportconcepts.net. I'm on Twitter at TheThinkerSmith. I have a Facebook page, which is Global Sport Concepts. I'm on LinkedIn under my own name. The book, The Governing Dynamics of Coaching, is available through my publisher, Vervante, as well as through Amazon Projects. 
they there's always ongoing consulting as as listeners have heard me mention and as I mentioned to you offline Robbie the the consulting project that's getting off the ground with myself and some partners with a virtual reality company is going to have the potential to absolutely change all sports in all the world with respect to what we will demonstrate is both quantifiable and how to develop what has so often been relegated to the mysterious realm, which is to say sports skill itself. And so that's a big one. The, as I also mentioned, World Football Academy, Raymond Verheyen, he and I have formed a collaboration and we will be meeting to discuss our master plan in Philadelphia for all the football enthusiasts who will be at that convention in Philadelphia in January 16, 17, 18, 19, somewhere in there. And then I will also be joining Raymond in Valencia, Spain in June 4th through the 9th at a – all the football enthusiasts will have to forgive my – Ignorance. I don't know the name of that particular get-together, but I know that it's a significant meeting of the minds, particularly in Spain, but also European and the globe in general regarding the, the future of football. And so I'm really looking forward to the collaboration between Raymond and myself. And then also, as I indicated, Johan van Graan is someone who I've developed a great association with, who's the new head coach of Munster Rugby coming from the Springboks, and Johan is the first, to my knowledge, the first head coach of a major sports organization that not only owns the governing dynamics, but is fully entrenched in it. We've already spoken offline, Johan and I, and I, I look forward to be able to assist him in any way that I can moving forward at Munster as it'll be a, a if, it's always a big if, because as the first page of the governing dynamics indicates, the limiting factor is not resources for they are plentiful, but knowledge which is scarce, credit to physicist David Deutsch, the governing dynamics itself is a resource. And while it contains knowledge, there's no necessary reason to think that everybody who owns it will assimilate everything that there is to be assimilated within it. So it's more than just the resources. It's a matter of assimilating all that can be, all that can be. And so I state that because it doesn't matter how many coaches in the world own the governing dynamics or, or any other effective resource. There's much more required to effectively assimilate and produce outcomes that are commensurate with what is achievable. So we have yet to see there, but I'm looking forward to, to doing what I can with Johan there at Munster and and beyond. So, again, thanks for having me on. No problem. James, thanks for being in. And for everyone listening, that's it for today. Another, you know, uh, Titanic uh, podcast with James. These are always uh, great uh, episodes, and I always really appreciate his time. And, Every time I talk to this man, I'm always left with more questions and, and more thinking and more, you know, deep thinking. Um, but uh, it was actually great. Thanks for meeting James. So, guys, for listening, I will talk to everyone soon again. But for now, take care, be well, and as I say at the end of every show, stay strong. Mm-hmm.